So there was this gal. She actually was one of the oldest women in this particular church. And one Sunday she gave this really gigantic donation to the church. And the pastor really wanted to honor her in front of the church. And so he actually called her up front, called her up front. And he had in his hand a hymnal because they'd just been singing hymns. And he said, we're so grateful for your your donation, and because of your generosity, you can pick the next hymn. So she turned around and looked around the congregation, and she said, I'll take him and him and him. (laughs) Well, as the pastor, Grace, I am grateful for so many huge donations of time and energy and money that so many of you have given all through 2023 and enable us to do so much in our community, and around the world. And I'm believing God that 2024 is going to be really our best year yet. Now, some of you remember 2023 that we spent a lot of that year doing God's grand story, the Old Testament, and trying to get kind of a big picture of the Old Testament and diving in from time to time throughout the year. Well, this 2024 year, we're going to spend a good part of our time doing God's grand story, the New Testament. Again, we want to see the big picture of the New Testament, and then from time to time, we're going to dive a little deeper in throughout the year. Now, how do we divide the New Testament? I want you to really think simply about the New Testament, the whole New Testament, in seven simple parts. All right, here they go. Jesus comes. Jesus ministers. Part two. Jesus lives, dies, and lives again. Part three. The church begins, part four, then you have Paul's epistles, the general epistles, and the book of Revelation. Paul's epistles, by the way, an epistle is not one of the wives of the apostles. Epistles are letters. So Paul's letters to the church, there were 13 of your books in the New Testament are the epistles of Paul, general epistles, epistles by other writers like Peter and James and Jude and so forth, and then the book of Revelation. So that's the whole New Testament. So we're going to keep reviewing that. I want you to be able to see how the Old Testament, like we did last year, comes together and the New Testament comes together. So we want to start today by talking about, number one, Jesus comes. We just came through the holidays, focus on the coming of Christ. But I want us to dive a little bit deeper as well this morning in the coming of Jesus. Now, before we do that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever wondered how much of your life is just left up to chance? And how much of your life God is actually orchestrating? Have you ever wondered if God is just up there watching you live your life? Or if God is actively and purposefully and powerfully directing the details of your life to bring a certain appointed end. Well, some of you here today would would probably admit that you watch the news and you see where the world's going and you feel despairing about it. Like, where is all this going? This is a mess. And some of you probably say you're looking at your own life and kind of discouraged about where it's been going. Well, I think the Lord wants us to know as we look As we dive deep into the coming of Jesus, some this morning, I think he wants us to know that there is hope. There is hope, reason to hope, 
that God is actually involved in your life and in this world, and he is, he is committed to bringing about a certain very good goal for the world and for you and for me. And we're going to get a lot of this truth out of this message this morning as we dive into the coming of Jesus, specifically the genealogy of Jesus. Now, genealogies are usually glossed over. You get to a genealogy, and all honesty, a lot of you probably just skip it. Or you read through it quick and go, I can't even say half the names. Why is this even in here? But there's an important reason why these genealogies are in our Bibles. And we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus for a moment. And I want us to, first of all, just read it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac, Jacob, and to Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. And to Judah was born Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and to Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron, Ram, and to Ram was born Amminadab, and to Amminadab was born Nason, and to Nason, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. To Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. To David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, to Rehoboam, Abijah, and to Abijah, Asa. To Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and to Jehoshaphat, Jerom, and Jerom, Uzziah. And to Uzziah was born Jotham, and Jotham, Ahaz, and to Ahaz, Hezekiah. To Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and to Manasseh, Amon, and to Amon, Josiah. To Josiah was born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to, to Jeconiah was born Sheatil, and to Sheatil, Zerubbabel. To Zerubbabel was born Abiud, and to Abiud, Eliakim, and to Eliakim, Azor. To Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Achim, and Achim, Eliud. And to Eliud was born Eleazar, to Eleazar, Mathen, and to Mathen, Jacob. To Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Let's close in prayer. Weren't you blessed by that reading? But notice verse 17. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. I want you to notice that this Old Testament family tree of Jesus has not been assembled in some haphazard way, but it has been perfectly ordered, perfectly planned, and is a powerful evidence of a controlled flow of history. Again, I want you to notice, it points out that from Abraham to Christ, there is a perfectly planned flow. Jesus' birth is the climax of three groupings of 14, it points out. So way back in Genesis chapter 17, God told Abraham he's going to have a son, his son's going to have a son, and he's going to have a son, all the way until you get to the point that the Savior of the world is going to be born, the Savior of all those who will believe in him. And Matthew 
chapter 1, Matthew summarizes this line of descent. He summarizes by pointing out that it contains three groupings of 14. Now, we need to understand this about numbers in the Bible. They do matter. Seven, the number seven, or any multiple of seven, symbolizes perfection. For example, when Israel was in exile in Babylon, God said the perfect completion of their punishment would be 70 years, which is 10 multiples of seven. There's also the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a number signifying fullness. That's the number three. Remember the book of Isaiah chapter 6, the angels, the seraphim are flying around the throne of God and they are saying, holy, holy, holy. They say it three times, symbolizing that God's holiness is perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So in the Old Testament, the number seven and the number three were divine numbers of perfection and fullness. And 14 is a multiple of seven. And there is number three. There are three sets of 14. So the point here is simply this, that God is controlling this. This isn't just haphazard, this genealogy. that There is some order to it, that God is controlling the flow of history leading up to the birth of Christ. In fact, he's controlling it in such an orderly way. He's planned it with meticulous and mathematical care. So God said to Abraham, you know, from you is going to come this Savior of the world, and he moves through history orderly to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ. So the first truth I want you to get out of this genealogy is that it's not haphazard. Rather, it's a demonstration of God's order and movement toward his great goal of salvation through his son. So get this, that God controls the flow of history. This is important that we believe this, that God controls the flow of history. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about this genealogy is not only does God control the flow of history, but God chooses flawed humans as he carries history forward to his goals. I mean, let's take a look a little closer at this lineage of Jesus. I mean, this list of names reads like a roll call down at the county jail. I mean, this list contains murderers, adulterers, those guilty of incest, prostitution, idol worshipers, cheaters, and liars. Well, let's go and take a closer look specifically. Start off with Abraham. Abraham lied to save his own neck. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, he cheated his brother, he cheated his father-in-law, and he cheated his uncle. Judah, Jacob's son, committed incest with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar who's also in the line of Christ, seduced her father-in-law, Judah, and the product of that union was part of this line leading up to Christ. You know, we, we, we hear about Jesus being called the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, like Judah is some, this great man of God. Judah was a hypocrite, and he was an adulterer. What about Judah's brothers? They sold their youngest brother, Joseph, into slavery just because they're jealous of him. Jump to verse 6, David, the father of Solomon, who it points out carefully, had been Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah, 
Remember that story. What happened to Uriah? Well, David had him killed so he could take so he could take Bathsheba, his wife, as his own. So David, the adulterer and the murderer, is part of the history leading up to Christ. Just jump back to verse 5. Boaz, Boaz's mother was Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. So God used a prostitute in the line of Christ. My great-grandmother on my mom's side was a prostitute. We don't even know her name. She gave up her daughter for adoption and disappeared. We have no record of her. But the daughter she gave up for adoption grew up to eventually become my grandmother. So, but Rahab was a prostitute. God used as a prostitute in the line of Christ. Now, Ruth is mentioned. Now, you studied the life of Ruth. She was a foreigner. She wasn't even Jewish. She is a Moabitess. Manasseh makes the list. Manasseh was so wicked, he was such a wicked king, that he sacrificed his own son in the fire to Baal. Manasseh, in the line of Christ, consulted mediums and spiritists. He was involved in the occult. In fact, Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that in 2 Kings 21, it says he was a terror to his own people. So Manasseh is part of the history leading up to Christ. His son, Ammon, is on the list, and Ammon rejects God. He rejected him. You go through this list, there's a lot of kings that are mentioned. Almost half of these kings were crooks, and all but a handful of them worshipped idols. So, so this is the kind of the not-so-great-grandparents of Jesus. Family tree isn't very pure, is it? So God chooses flawed humans as he carries history forward to the birth of his son. God used murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, idolaters, cheaters, and liars. Now, why? Why did God use these people? He didn't have to. Why did he do it? Why did God use flawed humans, wicked humans in the line of Christ? who stumble and bumble. Why did God use these people? I think he used these people because he knew that you and I watched the news last night. And we see where the world's going with all these wicked people and places of power and leadership. And he knows that it's easier for us to see all that happening and to fret, to become anxious, to worry about where history is going. I think God wants us to know that when, when, the, when the world is going crazy and wild, he's still totally in control and he's not the least bit nervous. Well, you say, well, what do you mean by that? You want proof of that? The proof is the last name on the list. The last name on the list is what? Jesus. In spite of all the crooked halos and all of the people in that line, in that list, the last name on that list is Jesus, period. No other names listed. No other names needed. God did it. He did just what he said he would do. The plan succeeded. He controls the flow of history, even using flawed humans. We got, we got to get this. This is important. God controls the flow of history to his desired end goal, even with freed will creatures, seven billion of them, and even with all these flawed humans and crooked halos. God still will accomplish his end goal. He'll do it. 
Just think about the Old Testament. The famine in Egypt couldn't starve out God's plan. 400 years of slavery in Egypt couldn't shackle his plan. Wilderness wanderings couldn't misdirect his plan. The Babylonian exile for 70 years couldn't contain his plan. Murders and adulterers and prostitutes and cheaters and idolaters and liars. The very line of Christ, the very line of the Son of God couldn't stop his plan. But God's plans will not be thwarted. Evil men and women cannot stop it. The devil can't stop his plan. No matter how mucked up people try to make it, they can't stop that God's going to pull off what he plans to do. And he uses flawed humans. He chooses flawed humans in the process. Flawed humans like you and me. You know, I want us to look at another passage that we're familiar with the Christmas time story, but I want us to see something else in this story about how much God's in control. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Again, a Christmas passage that's read several times during the Christmas season, but I want you to notice something in it. Luke 2, verse 1, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So think about this story for a moment. God, he had purposed that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It was prophesied, in the Old Testament, prophesied that it would happen in Bethlehem. That's where Messiah would be born. Jesus Christ would be born in Bethlehem. But Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth while she's pregnant. That's a 90-mile walk to Bethlehem. 90 miles. You ever walk 90 miles? 90-mile walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So how's God going to get Joseph and pregnant Mary to Bethlehem in time to fulfill the prophecy, fulfill his purpose. How's he going to do it? Is there going to be a dream, a vision, an angelic visitation? Were Joseph and Mary just having a quiet time in the Old Testament scrolls and went, whoa, we're in the wrong city? <laughs> no. What God did was he used the laws, the laws of a wicked government. And the decree, these decrees of greedy leaders to accomplish his purpose. Caesar Augustus had no idea he was helping out God. When he decided that he wanted to have a census, he did it because he wanted to more efficiently and effectively tax the people. But God had a plan. Caesar couldn't thwart the plan. In fact, Caesar's very decrees are going to accomplish the plan of God. That's how big God is. Now, did Mary and Joseph have any idea what was going on? I think not. There's nothing in the story that indicates that they had any idea 
what was going on. All they're doing is being directed by the sovereign hand of God through circumstances. And God gets them exactly where he wants them at the exact time he wants them there. So here we have these governmental leaders making unrighteous decisions and God's still accomplishing his purpose down to that specifics of having Mary and Joseph where he wants them at the time he wants them there. And he still does that today. He's still leading his people, including us, sovereignly, in all kinds of ways, and all, through all kinds of circumstances, to get us to the place he wants us to be at the time he wants us to be there. For his end goal purposes that are always good, that bring him glory and benefit us. And nothing can stop it. I want you to think about the fact that in the Old Testament, the devil's trying to stop the coming of Christ. He knew that you know, God told him in Genesis 3, he's going to send a deliverer, and that deliverer's going to crush your head, devil. God told him that. So all through the Old Testament, the devil's trying to stop it. But he couldn't. He couldn't stop it. God brings it about. And the same will happen during our time. All the things that God wants to bring about, he's going to bring about, and the devil cannot stop it. He can't stop it. Is he going to try? Absolutely. He's trying constantly. Will he succeed? No, he's going to fail. Now, I don't know what the economy is going to do this year. and I don't know what the next natural disaster is going to be that we're going to face. I don't know what some terrorist is going to do, is planning to do right now in this country. I don't know what the next election is going to, how it's going to turn out. But I do know this. I do know that God is sovereign and he's going to bring about the end that he has appointed and decided on that's going to be for his glory and it's going to be for the good of his people. Amen. Now, that does not mean, though, that does not mean that our future will, not, will be without famine or without drought or without economical downturn. It doesn't mean that in our future there's not going to be some pain and loss of life or tragedy or sadness because... Those times have to be endured so we will see what God will do in the end. I want you to think about part of that genealogy of Christ is the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. The marriage of Ruth and Boaz would have never happened had there not first been a famine that caused them to have to go to Moab for food. And then there had to be the deaths of two of Naomi's sons in Moab. And all these things are happening that are painful things, but, but if you, you have to endure the painful things to see what God's going to do in the end. And some of you guys are in a painful situation right now, and you're thinking, I see no way this is going to turn out good. And I urge you, endure it and wait and see what God will do in the end. All these pieces of our lives fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And God is guiding sovereignly way more than we think. <clears throat> way more. How can God give... Seven and a half billion people free will and still accomplish all his, all his goals. How big do you have to be to give people free will and still accomplish what you want to do? That's our God. The truth is, shakings are going to come, but don't be stirred by them. God's in control. So when you, when, you see, when you see the news and you think, what in the world's going on? And you begin to fret and become afraid, I want you to remember this genealogy. 
that God's guiding things. Nothing could stop it. Just like the first coming of Christ, he guided it. The devil couldn't stop it. The second coming of Christ, he's guiding it. The devil can't stop it. Right now, we've got a lot of evil people in leadership positions making decisions that are just wicked on the earth. And you know what? None of that's going to thwart the purposes of God. He will accomplish it. God will bring forth his purposes. So despite the evil men throughout history, he worked it out up to this point, and he's going to work it out from this point forward. And I want you to think about one more thing when you think about this genealogy of Jesus. I want you again to remember that he used flawed humans. He chose flawed humans to carry out his purposes. He chose flawed humans like you and me to carry out his purposes. Think about that for a moment because I, I really think there's a lot of folks that think because of my past sins, God can't use me. There's some of you in this room, I know there are, and there's some of you online that have these feelings of unworthiness that dominate your life, feelings of unworthiness that you don't think God can use you because of your past sins. Forgetting the fact that God has forgiven all your sins, he's taken them away from you, he's forgotten about them, according to Isaiah 43, 25, he's forgotten all those sins, he's taken all your shame and guilt and removed it from you, despite all that, some of you still are wearing these feelings of unworthiness is holding you back. <clears throat> Some of you has held you back for years. Today that, need, that today that needs to end. God wants to end that today. I believe he will. He did it in first service in people's lives. He'll do it in people in this, in this service as well. When I was a little boy, we had an empty lot down the street in one of the neighborhoods I lived in. <clears throat> and every time we had a chance, all the kids in the neighborhood would go play some game in that empty lot kickball, stickball, football, whatever. We'd come play a game. And one summer we had the college students from the neighborhood had come home for the summer. And we were all elementary age, and these college guys, they were like, you know, they were like heroic to us. They were big and strong and handsome, and, and they came down to play with us. And two of the big guys decided they would be team captains, and they were going to pick teams. And they started picking. We're all standing there all huddled up, and these two big college guys are picking teams. And I remember thinking as a little kid, thinking, I hope someone picks me. I hope they pick me to play on their team. I hope, you know, that they just, I don't have to be one of the guys that don't get picked. Pick me. I'm thinking this. So they're picking back and forth, and they finally got down to just a few, few guys left. And one of the big college guys looks at me and says, I'll take little Hutch. I can't tell you how wonderful that made me feel. I mean, first of all, the fact that he picked me was glorious. The fact that it was him who picked me, guy that I thought was like bigger than life, was significant. And the fact that he knew my name. Here's the truth. The truth is, I want you to think about who chose you to be on his team. God Almighty all his glory and splendor and majesty beyond our wildest imagination, he picked you to be on his team. He picked you. He knows your name. He chose you, warts and all. Isn't it, isn't it awesome to know 
that our God makes us worthy? We're not worthy. He makes us worthy in Christ. He makes us worthy in Christ. And some of you, though, today's the day to finally break off those feelings of unworthiness. Today is going to end. It ends today. It ends today. Brandy, would you come on up? Brandy and Tony. There's a song that is sung by Lauren Daigle. The song is Who You Say I Am. And here's the words. I want you to listen to the words of this song. I keep fighting voices in my mind to say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just a sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. You say I am loved when I don't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I think I'm weak. You say I am held when I, I am falling short. And when I don't belong, oh, you say I'm yours. And I believe, oh, I believe what you say of me, I believe. Well, some of you, in all honesty, are having trouble believing what he says of you. He chose you. He makes you worthy in Christ. He's taken all the sins and all the worthiness away. But you fight that. But today the fight is going to end. Today it's going to be broken off you. Those feelings of unworthiness that you've been carrying around. God wants to break them off today.